Um, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about uh, these ideas in our lives that prevent us from doing what God has called us to do, that prevent us from living the life God has called us to live. We've used this kind of the frame of reference, the scripture behind everything we've done for these last few weeks, John 10.10, that uh, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but God, Jesus has come. God has sent Jesus his son that we might have life and to have it more abundantly. And we've talked about that there are fears in our lives, there are dangers in our lives, there are things in our lives that can prevent us from experiencing God's mercy and grace and love, and more than that even, the abundant life that God has called us to. And over the last few weeks, what we've talked about is how do we overcome those? How do we move past that? We kind of started in earnest speaking specifically about certain areas last week when we talked about guilt and shame and addiction. And over the next four weeks, we're going to continue talking about those kind of things. And next week and on, we're going to talk about fear and uh, conquering anxiety and worry and anger and rejection and insecurity. But today I want to talk about something that most of you, most of us would never recognize as one of those things that is preventing us from living our lives the way God would intend us to live. In fact, it's not something that you may lose sleep over, although you probably should. It's not something that probably keeps you up at night, although it might. We're going to talk about what can be the single greatest obstacle to you and I living the life God has called us to live. And and here's what I want to tell you. Most of the time when you say that, well, what's the biggest obstacle to God really moving in your life? God really working in your life? God really doing some things in your life? Most of us, when we hear that, we think of, of, of bad things first. We think of poisonous relationships or addictions or guilt or shame or circumstances that are scary for us or bad habits or root of anger that is built up. Something that's bad for me and for the people around me. But the Bible cautions that oftentimes it's not the bad things in life that have the possibility of killing. It's not the bad things in life that have the possibility of stealing. It's not the bad things in life that have the possibility of preventing us from living what God has called us to live. It's often the good things in life that give us a false sense of comfort. So today we're going to talk about complacency and comfort. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the story of David and Goliath. And we're not going to have you turn back to there. But I just want to remind you in that story, one of the things that sometimes gets overlooked or one of the things that kind of gets missed, as we talked about over the last few weeks, that if you've been here in the story of David and Goliath, we like to imagine ourselves as David. But Scripture teaches we're not David, Jesus is, which means if we're not David, then they're the Israelites. And specifically, the story talks about three brothers that David had. And they were at the campsite, they were at the battlefield, and as Goliath's on the other side, and David is standing, or David is delivering food to them, it tells us in Scripture he went several times to deliver food, they would get their food, they would eat their breakfast, they would get their gear on, they'd get their armor on. It says in the Scripture that every morning they would go out, they would line up on one side of the valley, the Philistines would line up on the other, and it says in their full armor, ready to go, having been fed, everything good, they would do their war chants. Now, if you're here, we talked about, we don't really know what that is. The, we got spirit, yes we do, we got spirit. How about you, right? I mean, and we don't really know the, everybody yell. And so they would do these big war chants, they got the armor on, they're ready to go, everything's good. And then from the other side, they would go, hey, Goliath, 
Goliath would walk out. Goliath would would yell across the lane. Anybody challenge me? Nobody would challenge. And they go, all right, cool. We'll see you again tonight. And they go back and they hang out in their tents. Right? And here's the thing that we, we kind of overlook sometimes in that story. As long as nobody challenged Goliath, everybody was safe. Right? Because until someone challenged Goliath, it, it was like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> am, I, am, I, am I getting Goliath today? No, no, no. Good. Oh, good. We're good. We're good. We're safe. We'll see you tonight because we're definitely not going to have any problems. And these guys who weren't at home having to worry about the work their dad was causing them to do, that weren't at home working hard, they're out there hanging out, eating the food that dad's sending them, waiting for somebody to step up and take on Goliath. And to be honest, now there may have been some chatter around, you know, like Goliath comes out and they're sitting around the tents and his guys will do like, I I mean, I could probably take him. Like I'd go for his feet first and, you know, like plans. But then they get out there and they see him, they're like, no, no, we're good, we're good. Anybody else? No, we're good. We're going to go hang out. And as long as nobody took a risk to challenge him, they were safe. But that's not what God intended for them. And sometimes, let me just tell you, you know, I was thinking about this with graduation happening. And, man, we got a great group of 15 graduates. And whenever we do graduate recognition day, one of the things I always think is, okay, if I I had, um, Hopefully this isn't the last message they'll ever hear from me, but if they had one last message to give to them, what, what do I want to say? What do I want to tell them? And the reality is, whatever that is, it ought to be good for the rest of us. Amen? And so, like, I'm thinking, like, what would it be? And, and here's, what I, here's what I fear for this class, because it's what I fear for all of us, is that we become so comfortable and complacent in our lives that God is unable to use us to impact the world for the kingdom of God. I don't know whether you realize this or not, but we are the most comfortable society that has ever existed in the history of the world. American culture is the most comfortable society. You know how I know we're comfortable? It's because we complain about the most ridiculous things. Amen? I went to a local fast food restaurant. We were up here cooking yesterday. and We realized we were running a little low on some of the seasoning we were using. And, I, you know, we, we were here from 7.30 to 5.30 cooking. And I was, I, was, um, I was the errand boy for part of that. Like, hey, we need some of this. Go get some of this. And so I went to Kroger and got what I needed at Kroger. And I came back and... And I was on my way back, and I stopped at a local fast food establishment that I will not name, but it's one where you push a button to tell them what you want to order, all right? And so if you can figure that out, that's what it was, all right? And so I was there sitting there in my car, and I had to, I pushed the button and had to wait two and a half minutes before anybody asked me what I wanted. I almost drove off. I'm like, what are they... And then I had to wait like two minutes for my food. We're up to five minutes, people, waiting on food. And you know what actually ran through my mind is, I don't know, I'm coming back here anytime soon. Right? Now, you all laugh, but you know you would have thought it too. Like, what? what's going on? I want, my, I want my chicken sandwich and I want Chick-fil-A. Don't do this. It's like in and out. Let's go. All right? We're so comfortable. We got so much stuff and comfort. I mean, we got lazy boys in our house. We sleep on the best um, beds that have ever been invented. I mean, we, we are so comfortable. It's not just those kind of comforts. 
We don't have anything really. I mean, I, we're going to talk about fear. We're going to talk about what we're going to talk about next week, actually. And there are things. I'm not saying there aren't psychological issues. I'm not saying there aren't real issues. But, but when it just comes, if we were to complain about the things we're complaining about now to people 100 years ago, they would think we were flat out crazy. Just crazy. And I'm afraid we've been lulled into this understanding that that's what we're supposed to have. David shows up and he says, what are you guys doing? I mean, on one of those trips, he's taking bread to his brother and cheese to the people commanding. He says, what are you doing? They're like, oh, nobody's going to take on him. Just give us the food and go home. That's what his brother tells him. Give us the food, get back to the sheep. For many of you in this room, now this isn't true for all of you, but for many of you in this room, the eternal reward that God has planned for you is not going to be robbed in your life by some terrible deed that you do, by some uncontrollable addiction that you have. You're not going to be married and divorced five or six times. You're not going to end up as an alcoholic. You're not going to end up in prison. But for many of you in this room, even though that doesn't happen, what's going to rob you from doing what God desires for your life is that you're just going to settle for a good American life. Two and a half kids and a white picket fence playing sports on the weekends. Making enough money to get by and buy a house. And that's never what God intended. It's not what we were made to do. God intended for us to use the financial stuff that we have and the influence we have and the obedience we have and to take risk and to move forward with him. Comfort is not your goal. A couple of years ago, we had, um, I left the grill uncovered for, you know, I cooked on a, a Friday or Saturday night and I left it uncovered for two or three days and I left it uncovered. And I went back to do something, put the cover on it. I noticed that there were sticks in it. Okay. And that's unusual. I didn't cook sticks like I cooked meat, right? And so as I noticed there were sticks, I lifted up. You know, what was in there? Bird's nest, right? And so there was a bird's nest, and by the time I really checked on it, there was a bird's nest with eggs in it. Okay? Now, I have other people at my house that care about living animals, and so I couldn't just light the thing up. Right? You couldn't just like... Eh. <laughs> Burn off the extra. Let's go, right? And so we let the birds exist. And, you know, eggs and hatch and all that. It's that time of year when when eggs are in the in the nest. And isn't it cute when you see one not in your grill necessarily because that ain't fun, but on the side of a house and you got a little nest there and you see those baby birds' mouths just open wide, right? And the mama coming and feeding the birds and taking care of the birds and going and getting the stuff for the birds and bringing them back. And all the baby birds do is sit in the nest and put their heads up and eat, right? That's really cute. Oh, isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? But there's one point when the mama bird decides that it's no longer good for the baby bird to just get fed all day. What does the mama bird do? Kicks them out of the nest. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord from the parents tonight? Can I get that, all right? We're going to get sentimental in a moment, but for now, like amen, there's a moment, right? And it kicks the, you know, literally will throw the birds, the birds that won't fly on their own, she kicks out of the nest. And the bird either discovers its wings on the way down or too bad, right? 
We're not talking about cats getting anything, all right? Trying to do do a good illustration here. For some of you in this room, for some of you, God's been trying to nudge you out of the nest. You're comfortable and you're good and you got your friends and you got all the stuff in your life worked out and you're at the place in your career you want to be and everything seems to be just settled. It's just getting right. It's just like you've been working for this and it's just there. I mean, even the American dream is that you live, work till you're 60, 65 years old and have enough money to just live off of that for the rest of your life and relax. That's not what we were made for. And I'm afraid that too many of us have come to believe a lie about what it means to be in the center of God's will. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus 14. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we actually have this up on the website. You can go to fbcgillisville.com slash comfort, fbcgillisville.com slash comfort, and the that whole Exodus 14 will be there. We're going to look at a specific portion of Exodus 14, but all of it will be there. I was thinking this week about this whole issue of comfort and not moving forward and not doing what God intends for us to do. And I was thinking about that. I came across this story again. It's, it's one of my favorite stories. It has, I know I say that a lot, say it every week, so many good things in the Bible. But this story in particular has a verse in it that has just spoken to my heart again and again and again. And then we're going to look at a group of people who had become so used to where they were that they thought that that's where they were supposed to stay and they weren't willing to step out and try something better and bigger. It reminds me, there was a movie that came out many, many years ago. Some people consider it one of the, the best movies of all time. And it was about these two guys, right? Anybody, somebody tell me, what's this movie? Shawshank, right? We don't even, you don't have to give the whole name of the movie. It's not, it's the Shawshank Redemption, but everybody just says Shawshank, right? There's a story of Red, who's played by Morgan Freeman, and Andy. Andy was a guy that was a young banker, wrongly uh, convicted of killing his wife in 1947, sentenced to two consecutive life terms in Shawshank. These two build a friendship, and it's really an escape movie. They're talking about escaping at the end, getting out and all that. But as the movie goes on, in the midst of it, you get to know the characters inside the jail as well. And in particular, you get to know this guy named Brooks. He's an older guy. And I don't know if you remember this scene in the movie, if you've seen this, but there's a moment in the movie where Brooks becomes enraged and he takes another inmate and he pulls him into him and he's got like what's kind of a made out of just kind of a a homemade knife or a, a makeshift knife that he can do the best with. And he's got it held to the guy's throat and he's threatening to kill him. Red and Andy come, and they finally convince him. They get him to put it down, and they're having a discussion. What what are you doing? What are you doing, Brooks? What's going on? And he says, he tells them, they discover through the conversation, through the movie, they discover that he had just received word that the parole he had been looking for for years had been finally approved, and he was going to be set free. They're out in the yard, and they're talking about it, and they're having conversations about it. And Red tells uh, one of the inmates that said, man, he just bugged out. He just went nuts. He just went crazy. Red says, bug, Brooks, he ain't no bug. He's just institutionalized. He says he's been in here 50 years. 50 years. That's all he knows. 
In here, he's an important man. He's educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. You know what I'm trying to say. You believe whatever you want, but I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them, and enough passes by in time, and you get so you depend on them. We're going to talk just briefly today in Exodus 14 about a group of people that had been imprisoned, enslaved for a hundred, couple of hundred years. And they were so used to slavery, they thought that's what they were supposed to do. And they weren't willing to take the risk that God had called them to do to see a better life. Now, here's the thing. You're not, most of you in this room aren't in slavery. You're not in prison. But you are allowing the world to dictate what your life ought to look like. And you've become so accustomed to it that you think this is it. This is what it's all about. And if I could speak to the graduates today, if I could speak to our young people today, I would say, don't let the world convince you that this is what life is. And here's what I would tell you. The first thing I would tell you, and we're going to see from this story, is this. You cannot serve God without taking risk. It doesn't matter if you're going to college for the first time, if you're going to work for the 400th day in a row at the same place. You cannot serve God Without taking risk. I, I love this quote. A guy named John Shedd said, A ship in harbor is safe, but that is not the reason a ship is built. J.I. Packer, who's one of the most uh, eloquent theologians in our time, said this, It needs to be said loud and clear in the kingdom of God, there ain't no comfort zone and never will be. We can't serve God without taking risk. The Bible talks about this. One of my favorite um, parables is Jesus when he tells the parable of the talents. And you know the parable of the talents, right? He gives one man ten. He gives another man five. He gives another man one. The one with ten goes and comes back, and he's got ten more. When Jesus gets back or the master gets back, one guy gets five. He brings it back. He's got more. What did the guy with one do? Buried it. I was scared of you. I was afraid you were going to do something. And Jesus comes back and he says to take it and give it to the other man. I love the way the message paraphrase tells that story. Because it says in the message paraphrase that when Jesus gets back, he says to him, take the talent and give it to the one who's risked the most. And get rid of the play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Man, there are a whole lot of believers in America and around the world that are the play it safes. Not going to risk anything, not going to do anything. Jesus goes on in the next verse to say this Risk your life and get more than you ever dreamed of. Play it safe and end up holding the bag. Now, here we are in Exodus chapter 14. And as we're in Exodus chapter 14, we're here with the Israelites. And the Israelites have been in slavery, they've been in bondage, they've been there for um, 400 years. And as they're coming out of bondage, you remember the story, the plagues, Charlton Heston, all that stuff, right? And as they're in there and the plagues come and they finally the firstborn plague happens, they put the blood on the doorpost, they all leave and they all get out. And Pharaoh says, go, go, go. And they're marching to the promised land. And as they're marching to the promised land, God's taking complete care of them. He's given them a cloud by day so the sun's not too bright. He gives them fire by night so they can see where they're going. you got a million people all marching towards one place and they're heading out and it's a dream situation for these people. They have prayed about a deliverer. They have asked for a deliverer. They have gone to God for a deliverer and a deliverer comes. He takes them out and they start to march. But as they get towards a something they got to figure out, they got this Red Sea coming up. How are we going to get across that? They suddenly begin to hear commotion behind them. They're in an impossible place at the Red Sea. They can't get through it. And behind them they hear 
the army of Pharaoh coming to get them. They are literally in an impossible situation. And they think, man, we've made a mistake. We've done something wrong. We've gotten out here. We're not supposed to be. I mean, you listen to a lot of American Christianity. They would tell you, if you ever find yourself in a place you don't know how you're going to figure it out, you're not where God intends for you to be. And yet Moses will tell them they are exactly where God wants them to be. Oftentimes he puts us in a place where he wants us, where all we can do is to depend on him and take a risk in his name. Now, that's not how they see it when it starts out. In fact, they get there. If you look at in Exodus chapter 14, we look down in that passage, and what we see there is in verse, uh, verse 10, 14 verse 10, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, that seems like a good thing that's happening. The Pharaoh's coming behind them. The Red Sea's in front of them. They don't know what they're going to do. They begin to cry out to the Lord, Lord, we need an answer, we need an answer, we need an answer. But we see in this passage things that happen to us when we're living a life that is in complacency and not willing to take a risk for what God wants us to do. And the first thing we see here is you become cynical and sarcastic in your life. Look at the next verse. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Let me just, let me just confess something to you real quick. All right. This is not going to come as a shock to a lot of you. I, 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 I like sarcasm and I'm pretty good at it. Like, you know, not tooting my own horn, but I'm pretty good at it. All right. I'm, I can speak. It's like a second language. But sarcasm oftentimes reveals that there's insecurity and uncertainty underneath. Israelites, they leave. It's like the greatest day they've ever had. And it really does sound like a movie script. Like when, you know, when something good, really good happens to the hero, like halfway through the movie, you know that it's not over yet. Like you know that, right? And so you're like, man, something bad's coming up because this can't be all good. And so they get out in there. They get out into the wilderness. They're going towards the promised land. And suddenly there are those hoofbeats and they're like, hey, Moses, hey, um, where there's not enough space to bury us in Egypt? Is that why they let us go? Because they just want to kill us here? It's because there aren't enough graves that you've taken us into the wilderness. Man, we live in a cynical, sarcastic generation. We have more comforts than we have ever had, and we complain about more things than anybody ever has. It's easy to be cynical, skeptical, and sarcastic when you get lulled into complacency. It makes us avoid responsibility. Look at the next verse. The next verse says this. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? He says, listen, what have you done to us, Moses? We didn't want to come out here. Why would you take us out of here? They don't have any responsibility for that. It tells us in Scripture they had prayed for hundreds of years for someone to deliver them. They cried out, Moses comes and deliver them, and then it's somehow Moses' fault. They become stubborn. said, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. That's what we told you. We didn't want to come in the first place. You would have left us alone. We've been all right. You ever met anybody stubborn? Anybody ever met anybody that was stubborn? Don't point. Just, yeah. Okay. Anybody got wives, husbands that are stubborn? Don't answer that. All right. Like, I can be stubborn. We can all be stubborn. These Israelites are like, man, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to come. Makes them short-sighted. 
It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It had been better for us to return to slaves than it would be to be out here with you. I mean, the, the Egyptians are, are, are better than this. Man, Moses, I mean, yeah, we were slaves. Yeah, we weren't getting paid. Yeah, we couldn't eat anything. Yeah, we had bricks we had to make and out of mud. And man, it was terrible. But man, it was better than, than this. I love what Moses does here. Just because it's what a good leader sounds like it's supposed to do. Moses in verse 13 says to them, he basically says, I'm going to put you in a place where you have to have faith. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And I love that. It sounds like a halftime speech, right? Like we were at this thing the other night, Bobby Bowden and Mark Rick and all those guys were there. And, you know, you think about great college coaches or great movies where they give good halftime speeches or beginning of the game speeches, you know, um, you know what I've discovered, by the way? If you, if you watch sports today, like they have mics on coaches now, they're never as good as what the movies makes them out to be, right? Like it's just like, hey, guys, we're not doing well. Let's go do better. Like in the movies, though, you've got like Denzel Washington, remember the Titans, right? You got, you got Gene Hackman playing the main guy in the Hoosiers, giving that speech and drawing the, getting the, uh, the tape measure out and showing it's the exact same dimensions all here in this big place as it is in our normal little gym. You got these great speeches of, guys, we may be down by two touchdowns and nobody in this world believes about us, but we do and that's all that matters. We're going to go out there, we're going to take it to them. Let's go, let's go. And you run out of the tunnel. You're ready to go. That's what Moses feels like. He's like, guys, guys, listen to this. I know you're upset. I know you're worried. Don't worry about this. God's about to deliver us. I know it looks bad. I mean, it's real bad. There's a sea here. There's the army behind us. Don't worry about it, guys. Listen, I'm going to lift my hat. I'm going to lift my voice to God. I'm going to pray to God. And I'm going to pray to God so well that when we get done with this, God's going to deliver us. And it's going to be unbelievable. You're going to see God do something that you've never seen before. And those Egyptians are going down. That sounds like what you should do, right? And what he is doing here, what I love about this is he is telling us to put our, our lives in a place where it requires faith to live. Intentionally place yourself in a place where faith in God is required. Moses is trying to get them all riled up, get them all together, get them all put together. And he's telling them this because he desires for them to go into the promised land and see life like they've never seen it. He tells in verse 4 that God had already told him that, hey, listen, I'm going to bring the Pharaoh and I'm going to bring him, but then I'm going to destroy him for the glory of my name so that the nations will know who I am. If Moses reminds him, listen, remember God's perspective of this. He hasn't forgotten us. He knows where we are. Remember his promises. He has promised that he's going to take care of us and he's promised that he's going to protect us and don't worry about it and then the last part this is the verse that that always convicts me this is the verse that 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 speaks to me each time i see it it's one of my absolute favorite verses in all the scripture it's exodus 14 15 and it says this then the lord said to moses why do you cry to me tell the people of israel to go forward like, all right, Lyle, that really didn't just blow my socks off there, all right? Here's what I love about this. I love the Living Bible's translation of this, and this is what the Living Bible's translation says. The Lord said to Moses, quit praying and get the people moving. So Moses is giving this great halftime speech. 
And it's almost like one of the players goes, although it's God, so it's not like a player. It's a bad analogy, but go with it. Like one of the players goes, hey, coach, they've already started the second half. Like, that's a great speech, coach, but like they've already scored four points because we're not on the court. Right? God says, Moses, man, okay, like what you're doing there. That's good. You know, get them fired up, all that. That's great. But you're not dependent on them believing in you to get this done. Quit praying and do something. There are a lot of believers that spend their lives praying about things that God has already told us to do. And I love what Jeff said about Josh Norman. Josh just invited friends. That seems like a novel concept, doesn't it? Hey, I'm going to church. I'd like for you to go to church with me. Do you want to go to church with me? Right? How many of you have invited somebody to church in the last two weeks? Two months, two years. I mean, that's not one of those things you've got to pray about, right? Hey, I wonder if I really should ask them if they want to go to church. In a couple of weeks, we're going to do something here at First Baptist. We started last year, and, and man, y'all responded unbelievably. Some of you weren't here. You're not a part of our church, but you say, y'all, y'all responded unbelievably. Because last year, we did this thing called Day of Extravagant Giving for summer missions and summer camps for kids. We have lots of kids that go to camp. We have lots of families that are sending multiple people to camps. We have as many people talking about going to camps this year, both with kids and youth, as we did last year. We have probably the largest L.A. mission team we've ever had going this year. And we are going to, in two weeks, have that day of extravagant giving. We're going to ask you as a church. We believe this is part of what God's called us to do. We don't have to ask, hey, God, do you want us to be involved in missions? You don't have to ask that. You just do it, right? And so we believe this is part of what God's called us to do. We believe this is what God's asking us to do. And we're going to ask the church in two weeks. And people say, do you ever worry about asking the church that? I said, you ever, do I ever worry about asking the church to give to what God's already called us to do? No. And so in two weeks, we have our day of extravagant giving. You don't have to pray about whether you're going to give or not. I'll tell you the answer to that. Yes, you, you ought to give. Now, you may pray about and think about how much. And my guess is... Most of us in this room, including me, if we just said, I, I really want to think about it, I want to ponder it, I want to look at the word, I want to look at what else, we'd give less than God intended for us to give. You don't have to ask if you're supposed to. You just do. You got a neighbor next door that you're talking and you realize they don't go to church anywhere. They've never heard uh, really the gospel of Jesus Christ. They definitely haven't accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to pray, hey, am I supposed to tell them about Jesus? I think sometimes God looks at us and we use... I'm going to pray about it as an excuse to be complacent and comfortable. God's looking at us and says, you don't have to pray, just do. Because here's the thing. Now, we ain't got much time here. Yesterday, we, we did the men's meat fest. And, uh, man, it was good. Amen. It's good. And we, some of you are worried about us. Some of you ladies are worried about us. We did have side. We had a baked potato and meat, and that was it, all right? If your husband said he had salad, that's between you and him, but it wasn't here, all right? Like, oh, would y'all eat healthy? Yeah, we, uh, yeah, I ate the skin of the potato. That was the healthiest part, all right? Um, man, it was good. But one of the things I love about that, uh, you know, my dad comes up and cooks. My mom and dad in the first service, and my dad comes up and cooks. That's something my dad and I have done for years. I mean, literally for years. From the time I was Eli's age, I was out helping my dad cook Four or five hundred hamburgers, 
cook uh, barbecue and all night when we would do that for Fourth of July stuff. And so there was this moment yesterday. And uh, we had lots of help. Randy was there helping, and Jason Rangelo was there helping, and Don Hornbuck was there helping. And we had people in and out through the day. We had some of our maintenance guys working on some stuff in the church there that morning, so they were filtering in and out. And so it was a, it was a great. We were we were tying the bologna. Now, um, if you've not had barbecue bologna, I'm sorry about that. Um, it's amazing. And so there's a special method my dad does to do it. And we cut it up and we put the seasoning on it. Then we tie it back together. And we, it was a three or four man operation going over there, the, the tie and all of that. And we got to the last stick of bologna and all our help had left for the moment. Not, not they weren't intentionally leaving, but we just looked up and Tommy O'Neill had walked in. It was like the Pied Piper had taken him outside and Randy's out there talking. And Jason, you know, we just, uh, Jason hadn't shown up yet because he didn't want to do bologna, I guess. So we were just, you know, I, I told Jason the wrong time, but we were doing it. And so it's just dad and I sitting there. Okay. And so what happens is you tie it and then you got to have somebody put their finger on the place where you've tied so you can tie it tighter so it doesn't come undone. Okay. I know that's a difficult concept to get. It's tied a knot, right? And so it's just the most mundane thing. My dad ties and pulls, and I reach my, what is soaked in the seasoning hands, and put my finger right there where he is tied. And it was almost like a movie. Like, you know in a movie, like all of a sudden your brain starts rushing back? And I was sitting there, and all I could think about was sitting in that moment. In my mom and dad's kitchen when I was 13 years old, and my dad was tying bologna, and I am putting my finger in that spot. I mean, I looked up to dad, and I said, well, I put my finger right here many times. He said, we've done a lot of this together. And just in that moment, you know, it's just a nostalgic moment for a second. And then I go, man, I'm old. (laughs) Right? Like... Where did that go? I mean, you have those moments, right? I mean, later that night, my, my good friend, Stephen Williams, I grew up with. I mean, you've heard, if you've been around, you've heard me tell stories about Stephen and I. We grew up across the fence from each other. I texted Stephen yesterday morning and said, hey, Dad's here cooking ribs, barbecue, and bologna. And he said, I don't think we got plans. If we do, I'll cancel them. I'm coming. And then we stood out there, and there was a picture of Stephen and his son Davis my dad in the middle, and me and Eli. And just looking at that picture, you're just like, where did it go? I mean, on top of the fact that Eli's taller than me. Like, how did that happen, right? And you just realize, man, our life is short. You know, it's like this match. We're going to try to light match up here without burning anything down. Okay? So you light the match, and it's going to burn for a second. And you can try to protect the flame, and you can try to keep it going as long as you are. But it is short-lived. It's not going to stay lit long. And then it's gone. You know what's crazy about that? The Bible doesn't say our life is like a flame. It says it's what? A vapor. It's not even the flame. It's the smoke coming off that disappears. And if the enemy can for any moment get us to settle into complacency and comfort and miss out on any time that we have 
to live boldly and a risky life for God, then he has accomplished his task. Life is short. God is great. You know, the truth is, we'll close with this and I'll tell you a story. That's that's typical preacher right there, isn't it? I'm going to close and then I'll do some more stuff, all right? When you take a risk for God, you're not really taking a risk. Moses, when he stepped into the Red Sea, wasn't taking a risk because God had already told him he was going to do it. David, when he went out to fight Goliath, wasn't taking a risk because God had already said you're going to win. When you take a risk depending on God, you're not going to lose. So it's not even really a risk. The riskiest thing you can do is to live a life of complacency and comfort, not fulfilling the task that God's called you to do. One of my favorite stories comes from a guy named Erwin McManus, and I've told it before, but I think it's just appropriate for today and to close. Erwin McManus's book, Seizing Your Divine Moment, tells the story of his son who was uh, nine or ten years old. He went to his first camp, and he said, I was pretty good about that because it was a church camp. And he said, my son, this particular son, was a little scared of things and could get scared easily. And so I was worried about going to some, you know, overnight camp um, and having ghost stories and all that kind of stuff. He said his son came back from camp and said they were getting ready for bed that night. And he said, Dad, I'm a little scared. And he said, you're a little scared. He said, you know, what what happened? He said, well, at camp we talked about um, demons. Everyone makes like, great. I was saying to a Christian camp, they didn't talk about ghosts. They talked about demons. And he said, Dad, are demons real? And he said, everything he wanted me in that moment wanted to go, no, no, no. You you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. He said, but I believe the Bible, and the Bible teaches them they are. And he said, so I had to say to him, yeah, yeah, they're real. And he said, Dad, could you pray that I would be safe from the demons? And Erwin McManus said that in that moment, everything inside of me wanted to pray that prayer. God, keep him safe. God, make him safe. God, protect him. He said, but for some reason, the divine spirit of God said, that's not what you're going to pray. And he told his son, said, son, I will not pray that God will make you safe, but I will pray that God will make you dangerous. That when you're encountering evil in this world, you will be dangerous to them because of your commitment to the Lord. And his son looked up at him and said, dad, would you pray that I would be really, really dangerous? Right? My prayer for this group of people that are graduating and my prayer for us as a congregation is that we would be really, really dangerous because we have decided that we're going to live for the Lord no matter the cost. Let's pray together.